This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Sustainability, the Business Opportunity of the 21st Century. We are at a moment of enormous global change and even greater business opportunity. Climate change is the single biggest commercial opportunity of our time, and this podcast sustainability guru Richard Blundell and myself explore the opportunities open to businesses which embrace sustainability from the business perspective. Find out why sustainability is the greatest business opportunity of the 21st century. Back for another episode. Richard, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be back. So I want to pivot a little bit to current events and really help people understand the interconnectedness of sustainability. And I don't want to pick on Canada, but I'm going to start with Canada. And that's the wildfires. But so in Texas, for instance, wildfires in Mexico have smoke has trailed up to Texas and we can certainly smell it or taste it or even feel it. But we've seen just some Mars-like scenes from U.S. Northeast cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, And I was wondering if we could use that to maybe explore what I just heard you say really is the interconnected nature of all of this. A coastline may end at the U.S. border of the U.S. coastline, but that coastline goes all the way up to Canada and beyond and all the way down south to Mexico to Latin America. And so I was wondering if you might say a few words about really why this is such a transnational issue and how the international organizations may have tried to address some of those issues and how we might try and think about moving forward from the business perspective. It's a really good question and a very complex one, Tom, that would take a while to unpack. But let's start with what's happening in with the wildfires on the East Coast, which are all in Quebec, thousands of kilometers north of New York State and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, where you're seeing the, and I was reading today about Washington, D.C. is also has some terrible air quality. So I was reading about this actually this morning because there was a report that came out saying that that the wildfires now burning in Quebec are the largest that are on the planet at the moment. So there's one wildfire that is over 100,000 hectares. So that's a thousand kilometers, square kilometers. It's massive. And that's very unusual to see a wildfire that large. And so why is that happening? It's happening because we've had a very hot, dry spring that's unusual for Canada. Usually spring in Canada is quite wet and it is also quite cool. And so this unusual spell of weather, which is directly linked to climate, and they've actually made the linkage with this disaster to climate change, is causing disruption of daily life and economic activity all the way thousands of kilometers south. And I remember when I was living in Malaysia, when they used to do the, in Indonesia, when they used to clear cut the forest to actually plant palm oil, like kilometers and kilometers of palm oil plantations, the smoke would, because they, what ended up happening was they ended up burning these peat bogs, which just smolder. And they actually burn for years. They don't really ever go out. And we'd have smog in Kuala Lumpur that you couldn't even breathe. You couldn't see across the street because of what was going on. And so the reality is that 
And it was, and it's also very interesting that yesterday, the European Central Bank, one of the governors of the European Central Bank board members, sorry, actually came out and said that they had actually, as an institution, looked at the risk associated with economic activity related to nature. And they actually came to the conclusion that 72% of all the loans that they hold are exposed to basically biodiversity, the effects of biodiversity or ecosystems being depleted of their biodiversity and having a negative, inf- in, a negative economic impact on the loans that they've given to these companies. So the impact is far-reaching. It has impact. Once we start to impact natural systems, which we rely on, not just for us as human beings to, to feed ourselves and to clothe ourselves, but we rely on, with the example of the European Central Bank, companies rely on these natural ecosystems to actually deliver and produce the products and services that they generate. And so it is a completely interconnected universe or ecosystem. And once we start to actually, we start to, you know, sorry, I guess, I don't want to say mess with it's the wrong word, but once we start to have an effect on these very interconnected systems, we call these tipping points. And once we get to a tipping point and we pass that tipping point, the effect of passing that tipping point actually has an incredibly negative effect on that entire ecosystem and the ecosystems that depend on it. So passing tipping points are a little bit synonymous to going past the point of no return, because once you pass it, there's no return. You can't come back and fix it. And we're, I think there's seven now that I read recently where we're getting close to actually those tipping points. And they're natural systems like ocean currents, air currents, biodiversity around certain ecosystems. And once you get to a point where you actually surpass that, it's impossible to go back. And, and that's, what, that, that's what worries me. But at the same time, it's an enormously exciting opportunity, right? Because there's the opportunity to go in and actually work on regenerating those ecosystems, regenerating the nature that we rely on to actually deliver not just our, our re- resilience or social welfare, but also our economic prosperity as a globe. So that allows, or I think, gives us opportunities here, Richard, and really on a transnational basis. Let me ask, did you grow up in Quebec? Yeah. And from, you mentioned it's unusual to have not simply the size of wildfires, but to have wildfires this early in the season. Was that a little bit different than the experience you had growing up? Oh, I, we never experienced wildfires like this, certainly not this size and not this early. And even things like snowfall. When I was a kid growing up in Montreal, you know, now I was a small kid, so the snowbanks seemed a lot larger than they probably are today. But I remember we lived on the mountain of Montreal and I used to ski to school because I would ski down the hill and because there was so much snow. And now that snow belt has moved south. And you start to see, you see it in Texas, Tom, you get these incredibly cold snaps, these anomalies where you've got snow and freezing rain and things that you probably weren't used to growing up in Texas. Did you ever see any of that weather when you were a kid? So I grew up in South Texas 
and I can name for you the three years in my first 60 years that it snowed. And since that time, we've had the two coldest winters ever in Texas in the last five years. Now, you're always going to have anomalies, and that's why they're anomalies. And I certainly understand that, but it has dramatically changed. And we even had outside of Houston in January, a couple of years ago, there was a wildfire. And much, I think, Eastern Canada, the winters are very damp. For us, it's rain. For you, it's mm. hopefully snow. So yes, and then the flip side for Texas is the Gulf of Mexico has become much warmer, which facilitates hurricanes and other tropical storms. We've been battered by two 500-year storms and one 1,000-year storm over the past five years. But as much as the doom and gloom is interesting, we really both see business opportunities. So I know you work with a number of companies, both as a formal advisor as an informal advisor as well. Does it start with a Canadian company with an idea and then that idea might spread to the rest of North America due to our trade relationships? Or is the EU model with open borders in the EU facilitate this type of business opportunity on a broader basis? Yeah, I, this is a good question. I'll go back to your, just to make a comment on your the storms that you're now seeing in the Gulf Coast. So one of the reasons why, obviously, the storms are more intense is because the water is warmer and it creates fuel. So it, it energizes the storm. And what happens is that the storms that we're seeing now, because the jet stream is not as strong as it used to be, another tipping point, those storms, and because the water is hot or it's a few degrees higher, more water evaporates into the clouds, so the clouds become more moist. And then because the storms when you were a kid used to move through southern Florida or the East Coast much more rapidly, and now they're so laden with moisture that they actually stay put for days, and, they, and it's the rain that's really the damage and the storm surge. And the problem with the storm surge is because we've heated the ocean to a point where corals are now dying, and corals and seagrass and mangroves, which are the architecture of basically shoreline stability, so the natural architecture, which is being damaged by the high temperatures in the water and the acidity in the ocean. So we're ruining the natural barriers that are actually there to prevent from for damage related to storm surges and rising sea levels and everything else. So there's a huge opportunity and I'm working with a company right now that has created an, a robot to actually plant seagrass at scale. And it really started with, with planting coral using a robotic technique. And those, the benefits associated with that from an economic standpoint are massive because it's not just shoreline stability it's also seagrass is where 20% of all commercial fisheries rely on seagrass for those species to thrive. And most of them lay their eggs in, 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 those, in those environments. So that's got a direct impact on the fishery industry. It's got a direct impact on social resilience and welfare and the opportunity for people to make a living. There's also the fact that the seagrass actually is a filter and cleans the water. So the water quality is better. And then you've got all this sort of coastline protection. And there's also a carbon sequestration attribute to that 
to seagrasses, which is much more powerful than anything we put in the ground on land. So that business opportunity in itself has multiple sort of ways to monetize that natural ecosystem. And if you, and then to get to your example about whether it's companies coming out of Canada and finding their way into a global marketplace or the model that you see in Europe, which is reducing or lowering the barriers from uh, arbitrary country boundaries. The reality is I think that it makes a big difference when you have got the ability to address a large market that is unencumbered by physical sort of territorial barriers. Canada with 30 5 million people is a very small marketplace. So it's very difficult for a Canadian clean tech company to really thrive solely in this marketplace. It's just not big enough. Whereas if you go to Europe and the EU and you've got over 300 million people living in that marketplace with all of the, the policy that they put in place to reduce the barriers of going from state to state That means that you have, as a startup or as an early stage company, a much larger market to go after because there's been harmonization across those kind of artificial barriers. And so I I think all of that really matters. And the ability to actually create incentives in marketplaces to incentivize growth and and getting to scale rapidly, because that's what we need. Those are the most important things that we can do. And you see it with the Inflation Reduction Act and the way that they've actually taken a tax break approach rather than a, a regulatory approach to actually opening up markets. And it's a much more efficient way of getting capital, access to capital quickly because, it re- because now you're asking basically the users of these innovations and technologies to you're incentivizing them to purchase them because you're creating an enormous financial incentive for them to purchase those innovations. You mentioned tax incentives and certainly something that the great state of Texas uses quite freely and quite well in a variety of economic opportunities. Are there also, in addition to tax incentives, you see other types of funding available or other types of incentives for early stage startups that might help them in the clean energy space, either in North America or in the EU or the United Kingdom? Yeah, I think the there's some sort of flaws in the markets, if you like, around getting or helping early stage clean technology companies get to scale rapidly. And one of those is in the capital markets, and that is the private equity venture capital world, which is really, it's really now moved from being a sort of a technology risk taker to be more focused on growth, where a lot of the technology risk has been removed. Typically, venture capital does not like to take technology risk. They typically like to take execution risk, which is, again, the team and the quality of the people running the business and the strategies that they come up with in their go-to-market approaches. So for a clean technology company, which is typically, and I just broadly generalized here, CapEx intense because it's got a lot of 
in most cases, plant and equipment, unlike software or, or B2B uh, software companies, which we've seen explosive growth in over the years. There's a need for those companies to get their first buyers. They need to actually be able to prove that their technology works. So there's a step that needs to happen around piloting or doing early experimentation with their technologies to satisfy a buyer's confidence around whether this will work or not. And there's not a lot of capital available for that today. We're trying to now work with foundations to see if they would, and there's a move now with some of these foundations or high net worth sort of family offices to look at more market-based returns where, so that we're moving more away from philanthropic outcomes to more market-based outcomes and that with some of the investment approaches that are being taken by Melinda Gates, by Steve Jobs' wife, by Bezos' wife, they've got, they've built some very interesting foundations which are really driving market-based outcomes. So there's a risk profile at this very early stage of getting pilots done, typically has to be funded off the balance sheet of a company. They don't have the money to do it. So it's a process that is now really slow in getting to maturation, right? It slows down the ability for that to scale. The other side of this is that you have to be able to give buyers confidence. And so buyers typically today with in large companies, and even it gets even more complicated, medium to small size companies, just don't have the knowledge or bandwidth to look at a whole plethora of different potential solutions to the to their needs around net zero. And so it's, there needs to be a bridge to be able to get expert validated opinions into the hands of buyers, corporate buyers, to provide them with this initial confidence to make the first step, even if it's just funding a pilot. So there's some real opportunity there to actually look at ways to deploy capital differently. I think the whole notion of incentives is so important. And, I, and there was a recent report that was written about supercharging the incentives to make sure that that uh, that we're getting clean technology to market at scale and it's not it's tax breaks it's subsidies it's different in investment frameworks it's this notion of not letting people off by allowing them to move production to a jurisdiction which doesn't have for instance a carbon tax and so the EU basically now created a border, a carbon border adjustment, which allows for, which is really there to keep people honest about their supply chains, right? So that you don't go and build something in a place where you get away from or avoid carbon tax. And then it needs to, the other thing government needs to do is it needs to remove barriers to action, right? So it needs to create policy that's a little more predictable because it's not very predictable today. So people can take a long-term view on investment, but it also needs to remove barriers to action. So I'll give you just a very quick example and then I'll stop. But one of the things, if we're going to get to net zero, one of the areas that's going to have to, we're going to have to accelerate very quickly is the electrification of transport. And if there are, if we want people to actually use more public transport, electrified public transport, we're going to have to allow for cities to buy buses. And so if we take away, if we don't provide the incentive for cities or public transit authorities to actually go and make those investments, 
we're not going to have the buses for people to use anyway. It's a little bit like the recycling argument. If I don't give people an opportunity to recycle, they're not going to recycle. If I don't give people an opportunity to ride an electric bus, they're not going to ride an electric bus. So we have to create, governments have to actually remove these barriers to allow for action to take place. So Richard, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but if our listeners wanted more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on, what might be the best place for them to go? Yeah, so I've got a website called the sustainabilityleader.com. You can go and visit me there and you can learn more about some of the things that I do and some of the work that I've been doing recently with technology companies in this space. Richard, I greatly look forward to our next visit. Likewise. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century. I've linked to information on Richard's contact information in the show notes. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to him directly. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.